Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. A one, two, three, four. Hi, folks. I'm Amy Wright. And today my guest is Amethyst Kia, an amazing singer-songwriter whose new album, Wary and Strange, just released on Rounder Records. It's a truly haunting and remarkable album, and I can't recommend it enough. From embracing black identity as an artist to overcoming the social anxiety, grief, and alienation that defined her formative years, Wary and Strange recounts the pivotal moments in a life ultimately defined by reclamation and self-acceptance. Kia is currently nominated for three Americana Music Awards, tying Jason Isbell for the most nominations earned by any artist this year. Emerging Act of the Year, Song of the Year for the solo rendition of her Grammy-nominated song, Black Myself, and Duo Group of the Year as part of the all-woman of color supergroup, Our Native Daughters. Accolades aside, I see Amethyst as a strong and spirited person who I was honored to speak to, and I'm glad to share our talk with you right now. So check it out. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. You know, Amethyst, the last time we ran into you was with uh, our native daughters. It was on the red carpet oh, yeah. for AMA a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great to catch up with you again. And obviously, since then, you've put out a solo album, Weary and Strange. And I can't wait to talk to you about that. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about you and growing up in Chattanooga. What was that like? Well, it was it was um, it was an interesting experience. Um, I would say, like the first you know the first like ten years of my life were, I really don't have too much too many complaints. It was it was pretty awesome. I grew up in I grew up in the suburbs in Chattanooga, so we lived in like East Brainerd, and I I played basketball, I skateboarded, rode bikes, I did a lot of I was really into like doing a lot of outdoor stuff and um i had a lot of energy um i went and my parents took me to different all different places to go like the other we had the aquarium the zoo and um like wild wildlife conservation places going to different state parks so i had a lot of i had a lot of fun as a kid um and but once i got into my teenage years um, is when I started to develop a lot of social anxiety because I was, I was in a situation where I was, you know, I was the only black kid in predominantly white area. And also we were, um, we didn't go to church. We were, grew up, we were secular and we were, at least my parents at least were more on like, you know, the more left liberal side of things. So all of that factored in together on top of, um, me sort of grappling with like my, my, um, my, the way I presented myself gender wise and also my dealing with my sexuality and what, with all of that, all of those things tied together kind of made me feel sort of like the odd one out in a lot of situations. And it would feel that way until my last two years of high school and my parents transferred me from the school I was going to, to a creative arts high school. 
And that's when like I was surrounded by a bunch of weirdos and and it was okay for me to be me. Uh so um so yeah, I mean it was sort of it was it was a it was a kind of a it was an interesting time where in the beginning things were like, you know, I was oblivious to um the I guess the the hard parts of the world, if you will, and then found out very early on what it feels like to be like to feel alienated and isolated or and treated like you're invisible and not really feeling like I fit in anywhere. So um, so music was the way music and writing were the ways in which I could sort of create my own world where I didn't have to compete with the, those sort of those negative outside forces that made me feel small. So. Well, those so, yeah. are being a teenager is tough enough as it is, and yeah. all the things you've described, where you were the only African American person in your school, and then there's the religious aspect and sexuality and all those things. When you're a teenager, you don't really see, mm -hmm. you don't really have a lot of perspective. Let's put it that way. And uh, mm -hmm. as a teenager, we're coping anyway. But but those are that's a lot to cope with. And uh, when did you take up music? When did you start playing? Well, I started playing music when I was 13. My parents bought me my first, my very first guitar. Um, and once I, once I kind of got started on that path, that was, I didn't necessarily have any dreams of like necessarily being a rock star or anything like that. It was just, I just loved the way that the guitar sounded. And, um, you know, my parents bought me this, uh, it was a used, um, uh, 80s Fender, which I still have. Uh, I think they pay like a hundred bucks for it, but uh, not a bad guitar for a hundred bucks because it uh, it's lasted a while and it sounds pretty good if I do say so myself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so my parents just got me. This was like before the age of YouTube, so my parents bought me like DVDs, VHSs, CD-ROMs, and I just taught myself how to play through that medium. So. Um, I think the very first song I learned how to play was a uh, good riddance time of your life. Cause at that time I'd learned the C G and D chords and I'd started, I was listening to a lot of like alternative rock and stuff at that time. So that was like the first song that I learned. So just early on I, from that point on, I just, um, you know, I used music was kind of like this, you know, this kind of like self exploration or a way for me to kind of cope. So to cope with the, the feelings I was dealing with, so music was started out as a very like private thing for me. It was a personal thing. So for like the first 10 years of playing guitar, barring like one classical guitar class, um, I play music by myself. So um, from where I am now, I didn't really start performing in front of people on a regular basis until I started going to East Tennessee State University and um, started playing old time music and the bluegrass old time country music studies. So that was sort of like, so to go from closet musician to now I'm performing in front of people and playing with other people, there was, I had a quite a learning curve, but um, I think I, I managed to navigate it pretty, pretty okay, I think so. But uh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're doing yeah. okay over there. So yeah. were, were there any musical heroes when you were going through all that stuff as a teenager that musicians or artists that kind of spoke to you with their music? Yeah, I would say the 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 one big one for me, um, I guess when I was about 14 or 15, because I listened to all different kinds of music, but the one artist that really kind of inspired me to try to write songs was Tori Amos. Um, I remember I had a I had a friend that had a like a really cool older sister who like listened to like Nine Inch Nails and like all that stuff. So that's how I started getting introduced into like the even more kind of weird alternative stuff than what I was listening to. Um, and I remember um, being given a, a VHS to borrow. Um, and I remember one night, one, one night really, really late, I think it was like maybe three in the morning on a weekend. I you know, put the, put the VHS in. It was a, it was a VHS of Tori Amos's music videos from like 92 to like 2000 or something like that. And I put it in and 
I was just, I was so mesmerized by her, um, by her vocal delivery, her lyrics, her piano playing, um, just, and then like just the videos themselves. Um, I just, I was so captivated by how like mesmerizing and powerful she was and how she used, you know, her, her past traumas, um, to channel and channel into her music. And I just thought it was incredible. And also learned, you know, she also, she came from like a very religious, from a religious upbringing. And then within that had to kind of combat with her feelings as a human versus like the sort of the kind of like cherry picked things that people pick from, from the Bible to enact and impose on other people um, to control them. So she was like having to contest with, you know, wanting to be her own woman without having to, you know, follow a very strict sort of idea of what a woman was supposed to be. And so, um, I just, I really like that really spoke to me, even though I didn't grow up in a religious household, I very much was affected by, you know, conservative Judeo Christian values. Um, it, it, it did affect me because, you know, that's, you know, a big part of what we see in media and all of that. So to, to have an artist that I felt like I was sharing, it was a different struggle, but it was similar in a lot of ways. Um, that really just spoke to me and I'm like, you know, this is, you know, I, so then after that, I wanted to try and just write songs and again, no real ambition necessarily to be a performer per se, but, um, it was, it was a way for me to like, kind of, you know, um, I guess just deal with the things I was, you know, going through. So. I've always loved Tori Amos myself. And I remember when she was going through all that and kind of coming out and saying that the songs and the things she was writing were really reflective of how she was actually feeling. You know, a lot of artists are writing about life, but not necessarily their own life. And she, she was saying, I'm writing about my life, and it was very painful, and these are the things I went through. And I remember mm -hmm. she kind of had to go through another whole round of media that were a little bit critical of that. But I think, you know, she she obviously came out of that, but she really spoke to a lot of people through her music. Yeah, yeah, and this idea of, you know, yeah, taking that just very personal things that have happened to you that uh, that, that most people and that a lot of people would have a hard time even talking about. Um, and even for me, it's taken me a while to even like openly talk about maybe some of the things I've experienced, but through song, it was like, oh, I can really channel these feelings. So, so yeah. Um, yeah. So she's just, just always been my hero for championing, um, you know, getting through, you know, traumatic or painful experiences through, through um through using music and using your voice to connect with others so so yeah she's near and dear to my heart in a lot of ways so <laughs> well then I know you went through a lot of trauma I know your mom passed away when you were right in was you were you still in high school or were you in college yeah yeah I was 17 so it was um the it was like the yeah it was my senior year in high school so it was like it was that and then next spring I graduated from high school so it was towards like the middle of my last year. So you had, you went from that and then you had to go directly into college. Were you going to be studying music or were you going to college to study something different? I mean, you know, to be honest, I didn't, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really hundred percent know what I was going to do. I was just like, well, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to go to college now. So <laughs> that was like, and I picked, so like to give some perspective in my high school, um, because my the music that I played it wasn't like it didn't relate to the music concentration that they had there because it was like orchestra um I ended up getting in for writing so I did like creative writing and so when I decided to go when I went to college I decided well I'll just I'll major in English because I like writing again not I mean not having any <laughs> anywhere with all of like what I would do with it after I graduated it was just like, Oh, okay. I'll just, you know, keep going to school. And school was kind of like a, like a safe place for me. Cause I felt comfortable and I loved 
learning about new things. So like, it just was, it just felt good to be there. Um, so I went there to do to, for English. Um, I had a really rough first year, um, because, and I'm speaking in hindsight now, but during that time, I didn't really allow myself to really grieve for my mother. So I sort of kind of repressed how I was feeling and just trying to ignore it. Um, but I mean, it obviously affected me. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do very well in my first, in my freshman year. Um, and so then in my second year, I slowed down and just took like two courses and they were both like, West, the one was a Western humanities and another one was, um, um, Eastern religions. And that like definitely blew my mind. Um, and so then I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll do philosophy because like this is really interesting and I love this. Um, but then I would, so then I would do that. And then I had to start thinking about, oh yeah, well, I, I guess what would I do as a job? You know, <laughs> like I just completely was in school just kind of like having an adventure with no real forethought. Um, so it wasn't until I was in my really like and probably in my early 20s until I decided on a major for sure after changing it like three four times and that's when I chose bluegrass old time country music because by then I was minoring in it and they the Tennessee Board of Regents um made uh, declared the curriculum as being ready for having a major so I was like okay well I'll switch because at that point I was like this is what I want to do. Uh, so, so yeah, like about literally like four or five years after of being in college, I finally picked a major and like, I was at the right place at the right time. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting, looking back now, um, I definitely was using college kind of as like this place to feel safe. Um, because with college, there's like a, there's a very obvious like hierarchy and a structure and anything outside of structure. I tend to like, I, at that time I would get very kind of lost and confused very easily. So yeah, I, I mean, yes, I'm probably not the only one that's had that experience, but, but yeah, college was interesting, but it also was still good, but it just took me a while to get to where I needed to go, but I finally got there. So. <laughs> well, then you were in a performing arts high school and then you go to college and you sort of take a little bit of a departure. But were you playing guitar the whole time, even though you were not majoring mm -hmm. in music in the beginning? Yeah, I played guitar the whole time. And there was actually a moment where I considered, well, maybe I'll do classical guitar in college because I really enjoyed classical guitar that I took in high school. Um, but the, the one thing that I didn't really care for personally was the fact that I could learn how to play by ear, by watching and by listening. Because I'm a very, I've always been a very visual learner uh, and it's hard for me to learn in a non-visual way because my brain doesn't connect what's happening unless I can physically like see it and like follow it. That's just how my brain's always worked. And it's taken me a, a while to like get that. But um, they, the emphasis was, you know, the sight reading, um, having, you know, having your playing in a certain position and have and holding the guitar in a certain way. There was a lot of these like very like rigid rules, which even though I know I just said that <laughs> I like having structure was helpful for me for some reason with guitar, it was like, I liked being able to do whatever I wanted. And I didn't like that feeling of restriction when it came to playing guitar. So I was like, well, I guess I won't major in it. And um, it wasn't really until I came across um, the Bluegrass Old Time Country Music Studies that I realized that like, oh, well, here is a program that values the way that I listen to and play music. And also I fell in love with the music as well. So, I mean, if that didn't happen, then I probably, I don't know, I guess I would have done something else, but um, it was just the right connection of things for me. Um, I felt like the way that I learned music was being honored and respected and that really meant a lot to me. So that's, that's something that, um, really helped propel me forward to 
pursue music beyond just playing in my room, but to, you know, see, see where it would go. So. So you were listening to all this alternative music and you get to college and you see, there's this old time music program. What was it that drew you to that music? Because you'd been listening to alternative rock for so many years. And, and then what was it that really drew you to that program? Well, um, I think the main thing was, well, first and foremost, I have always been very curious musically and I get that from my dad because um, he played all kinds of music in the house growing up and um and to this day he's one of my he's definitely like my number one supporter and has the moment i said that i wanted to start a music career he was like in my corner 100 percent, and like was help has helped me so much along the way so i i get that ear of curiosity from him um so what drew me in was initially it was the music, but then it was also the cultural history because again, you know, I was amidst all of the things that have happened, I was still kind of feeling like mentally alone and with, and school and learning has always been a way for me to like, you know, get some sense of self. So like, coming into um coming into the program really helped with that um there are two things that happened one i took a an american folk music class by a man named dr ted olson who's a literal encyclopedia on all things roots music which is amazing what i learned in that class because during that time i also again found myself in a situation where i was like you know the only black person in within you know my courses and within this music that i was getting interested in and i also obviously had certain ideas or certain ideas about the people that played the music i mean when people when people of color think of like country or bluegrass or anything like that there's usually like an association of being you know being a bigot being a bigoted white person because i didn't have any concept of the history of country and or, or bluegrass. So I had similar hesitation um, in that regard. But in the American folk music class, I learned that West African music and influence played a huge role, not only in the musics that we typically think of as being, you know, Afrocentric, but also were a huge influence in 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 bluegrass and 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 country music um because the banjo is a is it has is west african in origin and this all was a history that's kind of been swept under the rug for numer numerous reasons segregation played a role um i mean racism played a huge role in why we why people have long not associated black people with country music or with you know, Americana music. So once I learned about that history and that connection, you know, with British Celt and West African coming together to create this music, I started listening to the music and hearing it in a totally different way. You know, there's this idea of, you know, a pure, a pure music when it comes to like bluegrass or country. And it's like, no, it's all, it's all this, this cultural hybrid of so many different things. And, and the fact that, you know, um, that black people played such a, a huge role in in that um, that coupled with seeing the Carolina chocolate drops and seeing the energy that they brought to like string band music and old time music those two things combined kind of helped me solidify that you know I I, I was learning about who I am it's like I'm I'm an American I'm an Appalachian and my ancestors have played such a huge role in the making of of this music and and different aspects of american music as a whole and like i am part of a of a legacy you know and once i could see that big picture it was like it for me it was like full steam ahead it was like okay well 
you know, even if I run into people, and I did run into people that didn't necessarily thought think that I really fit in, um, I pushed through and I found just as many people who did like what I was doing, did understand the history, didn't never didn't take issue to me being being there. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, honestly, learning about the history just played such a huge role in me deciding to like to dive in because until I was able to shake off the stereotype of what country music is and what Americana music is, once I was able to shake that off, then I realized that like, first of all, I should be able to play whatever I want and anybody else should be able to play whatever they want. There shouldn't really have to be like any kind of birthright to whether or not you play a certain kind of music or not. But, you know, that is something that I think commercial music industry, especially in the you know early 20th century, you know, played a huge role in dictating what race of people would listen to what music. And so um, so now, especially now, you know, seeing so many people alongside myself, like Yola and, you know, Rhiannon Giddens, and Allison Russell and and more and more people coming out now being like again making making black people relevant in this genre of music and being like hey we're here and we're we're meant to be here you know so um do you feel yeah. like do you feel like you're <laughs> do you feel like you're paving the way of sorts to open it up for other people to feel the same way that that they would um, like to play something else maybe it it took me a minute to wrap my head around that because for me i've spent so much of my life you know you know convincing myself of my validity as a black woman as a queer woman as a woman that is interested in roots music as well as other musics and wanting to continue to push the boundaries and the idea that amidst me figuring my stuff out, there have been other people looking at me thinking that I'm amazing. When, so it's like wrapping my head around that and realizing I am, I am the image of what I needed to see when I was younger. Um, and I've talked with, yeah, I've talked with Allison Russell about this very thing of like, um, and with Yola as well, you know, we are, we are the we're the person that we needed to see when we were younger um and and it's it, it just it definitely feels like it feels like there's there's this movement happening where not just in our our field but in other areas of entertainment where there is you know a certain amount of of wokeness has occurred where people are starting to be recognized for their talents and they're being given the opportunity to show that and we're given the opportunity for the next generation to look at us and be like hey you can also do this you know um and because representation really does matter and being able to see yourself really matters um and i think you know in this country you know with with white people you know, you have the opportunity, you always see, you see yourself everywhere. There's no question that you can't do something in a lot of instances, in most instances. And so to have that visual um, is something that we all should be able to have. And it's starting to happen. And I'm excited to see it because we're all, you know, we're, we're all part of a, you know, we're all humans and we all need to, ha should have the same you know, the same kind of encouragement to do things, I think. So we're yeah. going to get to uh, our native daughters here in a, in a sec. But before that, mm -hmm. in between college and and putting and working with them, you put out a couple of solo albums and you were writing. And what were you writing about in your first couple of albums? Well, the first two records, a lot of it was me interpreting like traditional songs. So that's what a, the bulk of it was at the time, because I'd kind of songwriting had kind of taken a back seat just because I was focusing so much on, you know, studying and learning about the music and 
you know, just being inspired by that. But um, the I would say on the first record, there's, from what I can remember, there's one song that I'd written that was inspired by um, the murder ballad, Pretty Polly. I think it was called My Old Man is, I think, what the name of it was. It was taking the murder ballad, but kind of turning it on its head where it's the woman that kills the man instead. Um, so that was one of, the, I guess, one of the first original songs I had recorded. Um, and then on the second record, I had written um, two songs for that one. One was called Hangover Blues, which actually makes a reappearance again in Weary and Strange. And that one I wrote during a time where I was um, starting to like date and have like a social life outside of school and working. And it, it was, you know, inspired by a, a very bad hangover I had once. Um, it's pretty, pretty straightforward on that one. And then Wildebeest was kind of, it was another song that was on that record. And that one, or that was on Amber the Skinner and Chest of Glass. And what Wildebeest was kind of taking the, the kind of the trope of the, the jealous lovers in the, in a blues song kind of narrative, but kind of, kind of tweaking it a little bit and, um, having some fun with it and having some interesting wordplay in there. So, um, that was sort of, it was my version of a jealous lovers blues song. Um, oh, and I also wrote another song called myth as well that ended up being on both of those, um, both of those records as well, two totally different versions. Um, I like, I have a tendency to like to revisit older songs and, you know, see what else can be teased out of them. It's just kind of fun. Um, but myth was about, um, about what it, what it would be like at, at the end of the world. So yeah, overall, thematically, the songs are all are all about being sad or having some kind of loss or like something like that. That's usually what the songs are about. I mean, I'm, in my Instagram bio, it says singing sad songs from the hills of East Tennessee. And that's pretty accurate. I've been doing that for a while, either singing sad songs or writing them and singing them. That's always kind of been the main um, kind of backdrop to that. Um, and then this record, Wary and Strange, more of the same, more sad songs. But what makes this stand out from my past records is that it's all original songs. Um, because I had a bit of a writer's block before working on Our Native Daughters. And then after doing that project, um, having to like do co-writing kind of jump-started my brain. And also writing about something conceptual other than just myself kind of did something to my brain where I just all of a sudden like was able to get some ideas down and so it was so this record kind of turned into um more of that self-exploration more of what you know Tori Amos has had did a lot with her earlier records just like I need to tell my story like this is something that I've not really told to a lot of people because I've put a guard up for a big chunk of my life um, to avoid rejection or betrayal or anything. So um, so this was the time for me to be able to kind of dig deeper and um, just tell more of my story than what I've been able to tell or talk about in real life. Um, and that also comes after years of therapy too. So <laughs> between therapy, and our native daughters, I was able to tell my story through song. So, <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that Carolina Chocolate Drops was pivotal, and and you really looked up to Rihanna Giddens. And what was it like to then work with her? Oh man, it was it was kind of it was really like a dream. It was like a dream come true for me. I mean, what started as you know the way that I met her was she. Um, I think she saw a video of me performing on YouTube at like Cambridge Folk Festival and then asked me to open for her for her Freedom Highway tour. Um, so it started with me opening for her. So like I'm, you know, opening for a person that was a huge inspiration for me to become interested in roots music. So 
no pressure, no, no, I wasn't nervous at all. It was, you know, uh, but so to go from that after a, you know, going on a couple of different tour runs with her and then to be asked to now like actually work with her on something, um, was really, uh, it was really mind blowing to me because, and I definitely like had was going through some fits of like imposter syndrome, like, oh my God, I'm gonna be working with like all of these like seasoned, like recording artists and, you know, touring musicians and like, oh my gosh, like how, what the hell am I gonna bring to this? But like, I said yes, because, you know, the, 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 the concept was so compelling and it was something that really spoke to me. And it's something that it was talking about a history that I've read about and learned about and talked about but have never written anything about and or written any songs about. And this felt like such an amazing moment. Not only that, but also having four black women who all play banjo and are, are using um, and are using like folk music, the music that we're sort of like the few black people that are in reclaiming that as a way of um, like black expression was such a powerful like image and sentiment that I was like, I can't not do this. So, um, you know, we were in Louisiana for about, I guess about two or three weeks um, working with, um, with Dirk Powell at his studio. And, um, and we also were working with, you know, her, her touring band that also, that was touring with her quite a bit at the time um, with, uh, Jamie Dick and Jason Cypher. So it was, it was cool to be able to like, to work with all of them and, you know, make these songs. We ended up writing songs. We were like writing songs and then recording them. So it was very much like a very organic situation where we were all there and we just would like write and read and talk. And then we would, you know, go in the studio and record stuff. And, um, everyone was, um, was really, really made, really made, that history come to life in such an awesome way. And it was just really incredible to be able to work, be able to work with everyone um, and be able to, again, co-write for the first time. Cause when you're writing and recording, it's not like, it's not like you can, you know, you write a verse and a chorus and then like, you know, two months later, maybe you come back to it or something, or you just can't get past that. With this, it's like, hey, I, can you help me? Because this is all I got right now. This is all my brain can do. So, um, so that was, um, that was the kind of teamwork that I really, um, had never really experienced in that way before. And I, it was, um, it was really great. I learned so much from that. And again, it, you know, Allison was also going through a writer's block too. So it also jumpstarted her brain and then her album's coming out, you know, and gosh, this Friday. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, I think it was, I think it did everybody some good for sure. <laughs> so do you think that experience helped you be able to channel your creativity, uh, to put out wary and strange? Definitely. It definitely did. Um, I think cause for me, like right before, you know, right before we did, um, our native daughters, I actually was, I recorded the first, you know, batch of songs for what would what would be called wary and strange and at the time that i went in i really felt like i needed to make a record it because just out of pressure like it had been a few years since the last record i'd done and i just was like i need to like record something because it's it's time to record something um so there wasn't really a rhyme or reason to it so by the time i was recording i recorded i was recording things that like either i'd already recorded and was kind of rehashing not like just taking one song and like redoing it but like a bunch of songs that i'd already recorded or songs that like i didn't really play anymore but like trying to fill i found myself trying to fill out a track list and after a few months of like listening to it and thinking more about it and, you know, obviously writing more songs since then, I was like, you know, this isn't the record that, this isn't the record that I want to make. Like I've got, there's so much more I have to offer than what I've, than what I've recorded. So then I went back into the studio 
this time I went to um, Echo Mountain in Asheville, North Carolina. And at this point I'd like, I had parted, I'd amicably parted ways with, with Dirk Powell as a producer, um, since I wanted to take the record in a different direction. But then I went in the studio and um, the songs that I'd written, this time it had like, instead of like acoustic folk, this one was like, had a lot more rock elements and there was like strings and woodwinds and horns and electric guitar and bass and drums. There was a whole bunch of stuff happening. Um, and so I recorded those. And then, um, you know, at this time I'd already started working with uh, Ramser management and they pitched these two different, some of the recordings that I had from the, from the Dirk Powell sessions and then all of the recordings from Echo Mountain, put all those together and then like started pitching them to labels. And by this time I'd ended up meeting uh, Mark Williams, A&R rep from Concord. Then I got introduced to Tony Berg and I expressed my interest in wanting to combine my roots music and alternative music influences and putting them together in a way that was cohesive. Cause at this point you had two totally different like sounds happening and it just sounded like kind of a collage, but not like necessarily in a good way. <laughs> um, so how could we make this all cohesive? And then with Wearing Strange, I went for the final time, went back to a studio, we went to Sound City in Los Angeles and uh, Tony Berg took on the role of producer and, um, and then realized that we're basically gonna have to re-record everything um, and kind of start from scratch because it was important for him. It For him, it was important that my song and my vocal don't get covered up with like a wall of sound, which is essentially what was happening for most of the recording. So, um, so yeah, we ended up for two weeks, just started from scratch. He brought in some amazing musicians um, to record on this and um, the different touches and sounds and textures that he, you know, added to these songs really created this, just this just beautifully, a beautiful visual record that, that I would actually like buy, you know? Um, and that was the main thing is, is like, would I buy this record? And if you don't want to buy your own record, then I mean, you're not doing it. Right. You're not doing it right. You need to try something else. Um, and I also like, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I just, I'm just so happy with how this, how this record turned out. And, um, and although it was hard in the beginning because it was like, well, I've already gone to the studio twice. I've spent X amount of, I've spent like thousands of dollars to like make this happen. And, but the minute that I walked in the studio, and obviously by this time I had was signed to a label, so I had a, I had a little bit of help uh, to <laughs> to re-record the record again. Um, but once I stepped in the studio and started working, I was like, "This is what these songs needed," you know, um, in order for them to. And it went above and beyond what I could have ever imagined these songs were going to sound like. Well, it's beautiful so, yeah. and it's powerful, and I think that the music really does the lyrics justice. I was reading along when I was listening to the album, I was reading the lyrics and very powerful lyrics. And what, what does the name wary and strange mean to you? Wary and strange is a phrase that I have had floating around in my head ever since I was young, younger, I guess I should say, when I was a teenager that has been floating around in my head for years because that's how I have felt for a long, long time. And it became especially fitting once I'd finished writing these songs and once the songs get re-recorded and produced in a different way, um, Wary and Strange just simply embodies the way that I've felt. And these songs are all some, are some incantation of feeling wary or strange, whether it be in Black Myself or Firewater or Opaque. Um, you know, all of these songs are about dealing with feeling, you know, weird and alone and trying to like navigate the world while also dealing with these 
these feelings so let's talk about black myself because that's a very powerful song and what do you want people to take away from black myself with black myself i want people to understand that this song is it's not just about black people it is talking about an aspect of um the black experience in this country but this is also about an American experience. And it's it's about, essentially, if you are a human being, you should be able to hear the song, hear the stories, and understand that regardless of race, nobody should be treated in the ways that I'm describing in the song. Um, and so that to me is the biggest thing. Um, you know, I have had people say, you know, I really like black myself, but, and I've looked like some people have said, I want to cover it or like, I feel weird singing it because I, and then there's some white people that just straight up sing the song and they don't care, but there are some people that feel like, like it's not appropriate for them to sing it and not necessarily in a malicious way, but they just, they feel like they're taking something away from me or other black people if they're singing it. And I think, first of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that. I think, again, I think the song is about being othered, essentially. And if anybody can stop and think about a time that they've felt othered, um, that's what, it's the same feeling. It's just a different experience that maybe you haven't personally experienced, but it's the feeling of being othered and not being valued as a human. And so that's what Black Myself is essentially about. It's about not being valid as a human being. Obviously, it's also looking at, you know, what the transatlantic slave trade, how it affected the way that we treat one another. But, you know, it's, you know, we are all Black and white and really anybody, you know, Native American, Asian American, we're all are healing from past transgressions and um i think with black myself that's the main idea is to to come together and recognize each other as human beings at the end of the day so and i was reading the lyrics and for me what struck me is how something really small for a child makes you feel othered it's just a something really small that makes you feel different. And uh, mm -hmm. that could be other people too, but I think it's been particularly pervasive, you know, in the black culture. And to, to not have to think about those things, that's the goal, is to not even have to worry about those things, to grow up and just be who you are and not feel, yeah. not feel different. You know, a quote exactly. that, a quote that I uh, read that came from you said, I'd like to see the day when we won't need to highlight these months like Black History Month anymore because Black history and women's history is all part of American history. Do you think we're making progress? It's oh, interesting. I feel like it's interesting that I said that at that point and then this year because of, you know, the album campaign and me becoming more and more visible, I'm actively part of things like like right now I'm doing things for like Pride Month. I did something for Black History Month. I played made a playlist on Spotify. I made a playlist for uh for Women's History Month. So like I'm now actively like vocally and actively like actually doing things during this month more so than I think I did in the past. And I think initially when I made that initial comment, I think I guess my I guess I feel like my my feelings about it are a little bit different. I'm like thinking out loud, so this is all over the place now. But um, I think I think I'm 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 happy to do these things now because I am seeing I am seeing the impact that it makes. Um, but while we're also doing these months, I think it's important that you know in in like our you know school systems. Um, I think I think we think we need to know about this these different kinds of histories before we get to college, 
and it shouldn't just be a college elective that you take. I shouldn't take, I shouldn't have to take black American political thought as an elective in order to understand, in order to understand what happened in this country in its full scope. You know, like it's something that needs to be introduced earlier. And hopefully as we continue to do these different, you know, initiatives and different months, that this information can start to get into the school system. So that way, by the time someone is, has reached high school, they already have the information and they already understand and know. So, um, and I don't really fully know what's happening now in the school system. I don't have children. So maybe things are changing there. I'm not hundred percent sure, but, um, but yeah. Um, I mean, these, these, these months do have an impact that I think is important and uh, but hopefully this continues to maybe trickle down into, you know, um, where people learn about this stuff earlier than, and it becomes a regular part of, you know, our, just our common knowledge. So. Well, if you didn't know it before, you're an incredible role model for so many young people, women, boys, and the, the record, Wary and Strange, is an incredible album. I encourage people to listen to the music, but to read the lyrics. And I, we can't wait to follow you through your career. It's going to be a great one. Thanks for coming and visiting with us, Amethyst. Thank and you so much for having me. This has been awesome. So hope to see you all again soon. <laughs> Likewise. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Amethyst Kia. Be sure to check out the new full-length studio album from Kia titled Wary and Strange on Rounder Records. You can visit amethystkia.com to learn more. And as always, don't forget to visit diddytv.com for more exclusive, on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.